Welcome to the Scale Up Your Business podcast. In this podcast, we talk about what it takes to go from startup to scale up and beyond. How to significantly grow your business, create freedom, build wealth, and live life on your terms. Featuring some very special guests and experts to give you advice and direction on your journey. And now, introducing your host, entrepreneur, investor, and scale-up specialist, Nick Bradley. Hi, everyone. It's Nick here, and welcome to Scale Up Your Business. Today, I am delighted to have a guest on the show that I have been really looking forward to interviewing for some time. His name is Daniel Priestley. And if you are an entrepreneur and you have not heard of Daniel, which possibly in the US you may not have, but certainly you would if you're from Australia and the UK, Daniel has written four amazing books on the journey of entrepreneurship, startup, scale up, how you create value. And in fact, one of the first books I ever read before I uh, was inspired to do what I do now was a book he wrote called Entrepreneur Revolution. So if you haven't read that book, I I suggest you do get on Amazon now and and buy it. But um, Daniel is on the show today. It's one of those interviews where because it's about scale up, it's about how do you create value from business. We could have gone on for hours. <laughs> in fact, I had to kind of, you know, be respectful of Daniel's time and and shorten the interview a little bit. But you know, there is so much value in this. This is if you are an entrepreneur and you're in a what he calls the wilderness, which is the struggle zone of business, the bit where you're trying to grow but you're not growing fast enough. You might be cash poor, time poor. If you're in that state, it's really, really tough. And some of the things we get into today, the choices that you need to make, the decisions. I'm sure this is going to help you massively. So Daniel Priestley, um, his business is called Dent Global. He works with many, many businesses, many entrepreneurs, um, how how to create value and how to create really impact and purpose-driven businesses. So um, I absolutely suggest you look him up. And I'm certainly going to be doing some more stuff with Daniel this year personally because I get a lot of value from what he talks about and the way that he simplifies business so that we can all look at it in a way that we can understand what we need to do, but more importantly, we can take action. So there we are. Delighted to have Daniel on the show. You can probably tell I'm excited. I've literally just finished the interview with him as I record this introduction. So without further ado, here is Daniel Priestley. Hi, everyone. It's Nick here, and welcome to another episode of Scale Up Your Business. I am delighted today to have Daniel Priestley joining me. Now, if you don't know who Daniel is, Daniel um, is the co-founder of a business scale-up growth accelerator called Dent Global, and he's also the author of four, Dan? Four amazing books. Four books. (laughs) He's also a fellow Australian, so for all the people who listen to me and go, oh, the ranting Australian, off he goes again. Well, guess what? got another one on now. <laughs> so listen, Dan, welcome to Scale Your Business. I know that um, my audience is going to get a heap of value out of today. So thank you for giving up your time. Oh, it's a pleasure. I absolutely love the conversation around scale up. I think there's a huge conversation around starting new businesses, but actually where most of the value is created is in the scaling up phase. Great. Well, let's, let's get, we're going to get right into this today because I think you and I have similar um, thoughts around this. And before we start, I just want to share a bit of a story. So a few years ago, I mean, most of, most of my audience know my background was working in private equity. And actually, I was the guy who the um, investors would send into businesses that were going wrong. And I'd have to do the turnaround. So I was that guy. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting. I did 10 years of that. But I, um, I got myself in a bit of a spin. In other words, I was 
you know, a huge amount of achievement, if you want to call it that, but not a lot of fulfillment. And a few years back, I kind of had an epiphany. Now, two things happened, right? Yep. One was I went, I went and attended um, a Tony Robbins event. Yep. And that was pretty cool. And the other thing, I was sitting on a beach in Bondi and I was reading this, this interesting book called Entrepreneur Revolution. <laughs> How cool. <laughs> that was part of the yes. epiphany. That was part of the epiphany, mate. So I read this book and I thought, this is awesome. So, and for everyone, I'm mucking around here a bit, but for everyone who's listening, that's, that's your first book, Dan, isn't it? Uh, it was actually my second book that I released. It was the first 9,000 words that I wrote. And then the book morphed off into this whole thing about key person of influence. And it really ran down a rabbit hole around key person of influence. But the first 9,000 words was just kind of like laying too much pipe before getting into, the, into what ended up becoming key person of influence. So I chopped it off. And a year later, I rediscovered the, file, the, 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 the Word document. And I went, oh, actually, this is really good now. And I can take this in a different direction. And it was the second book that I, uh, that I released. Wow. Okay. I mean, it's the first one of yours that I read and then I've read the rest. But for people who haven't read this book, I mean, it was, it's a few years old now. I think it's, what, two or three years old. But um, I tell you what, it, it's, it's game changing in terms of um, just you present a lot about the opportunities of entrepreneurship, particularly as the world is changing. The first thing I want to kick off with today is, um, you know, based on that, how do you think the world's changed since you wrote that book? Well, when I wrote the book, it was around 2000. I started writing that book around 2010 to 2012, and the first version came out in 2012, and then I revised it in about 2017. Um, and really, the idea was that when I first started writing it, it was essentially that smart, intelligent, dynamic people were getting more value in an entrepreneurial company than in a large company. So if you went back to the 80s, you'd see that all the smartest people uh, could make the most money and have the most fun being company men and women, uh, working, for, working for large corporate companies, you know, Pepsi and, uh, and, and Apple and IBM and, and Goldman Sachs and all of those kind of places were the funnest places to hang out where you'd earn the most money and have the most fun. And then because of technological changes, I basically said in the book that most of those kind of people who would have previously ended up in large corporates uh, are actually leaving corporate and starting their own business because they can earn more money and have more fun in business. So that was the big sea change that, that I'd seen. And, um, you know, in the last 10 years, we've had a million businesses kick off uh, in the UK. Uh, so it's gone from sort of 4.7 to 5.7 million businesses. Um, so that's one huge change. There's a lot more entrepreneurs in the last 10 years. The other huge change is that big companies have begun getting entrepreneurial. So one of the things that I talked about in the first edition was that large companies just weren't very good at being cut, you know, customizing to, to the needs of um, micro niches. They weren't very good at communicating. They weren't very good at making fast dynamic decisions. But one thing that has happened in the last 10 years is that through the use of data and technology, uh, they are creating customized solutions. They are being able to figure out how to delve into smaller niches, but get across a hundred niches. Um, so they're becoming more entrepreneurial and they're adopting more entrepreneurial structures and those sorts of things in the, in the companies. Um, <clears throat> and obviously the other huge change is just where we're going with technology at the moment. And, and essentially the, the, the technological trends that, um, that are transforming the business landscape. Yeah, and everything's increasing. I mean, the, the pace of that is, is unbelievable. I, when I used to work, I think back to my corporate career when I was at uh, News International of all places, you know, we used, to, we used to talk about five-year plans. And when I work with people now, I say, you know, you, you'd be lucky, <laughs> lucky to predict what the world looks like in, you know, 18 months, two years, let alone five years. 
Um, yeah, absolutely. Because of the amount of disruption going on. So, okay, interesting. And because there are more people, what do you think? Is there more people coming into this this kind of, you know, the title, the, the, the entrepreneur, the person who's creating value and, and doing that on their own terms? Um, do you think there's enough space? I mean, there's obviously enough space for great ideas to solve problems, but you know, what's that going to have an impact on the world of corporate? Do you think going forward? Yeah, it's it's like it's like it's never been harder and it's never been easier. It's it's strange. So um, it's you know the the key to having a great company is standing out, scaling up, and making an impact. And um, when you think about standing out, if you get your message right and if you get it in the right format. You know, you can have a million people know about your business by releasing a YouTube video, and uh, you know, you can have a podcast, and a hundred thousand people listen to a podcast. So, you there has never been an easier time or a better time to be standing out in a noisy marketplace. But with that said, it's never been harder because you've got a million voices who all have access to the same microphones, um, and you know, so so it's it's the best of times and the worst of times. What we're seeing is polarization. So we're seeing people who who clearly say this is the best time to be in business and I'm loving it. I'm earning more money than ever. I'm having a great time and I'm surfing the waves of change. And you get other people who say, hey, I'm getting disrupted. I'm being dumped by these waves. Um, I'm being left behind. Um, my income hasn't changed in 10 years, but I'm working harder than ever. So you're getting this polarization in society and it's reflecting across politics and it's reflecting you know, in many different parts of society. But um, it's that kind of what happened in the first industrial uh, age, the first industrial revolution was there was this line written by um, uh, Charles Dickens, which was, it's the best of times, it's the worst of times. Um, and, uh, and we're kind of having a little bit of that at the moment. Yeah, no, I can see that. And just to jump on, on one of the points you made there around some people are, you know, when you talked about sort of dumping ways, I was going back to Bondi and thinking about that. But um, <laughs> when you say some people are having an amazing time and some people are challenged, what, what do you think the difference is between those paradigms? So what's the person doing having a great time versus the one who's struggling with how the world's changed? So I define this as the difference between functional or vital. So functional is being a viable solution. It's being a potential option. It's being a commodity. Um, and the value of functional people is dropping through the floor. So um, functionality be, can be uh, replaced by technology or overseas solutions in lower income environments or you know, all sorts of different ways you can replace functionality or transform functionality. Uh, and vitality, if you look in the dictionary, there's two main definitions of vital, which is uh, life force and irreplaceable. So essentially, there are these people who are the irreplaceable life force of their business and the irreplaceable life force of their, their industry. And they try and show up as that irreplaceable life force. They're leaning in. Um, they're, they're, they're in their industry to make waves. They want to, they're not so much worried about functionality. They're worried about outcomes. And the more that you show up as a vital person um, and someone who's leading the way and thinking and passionate and all of those positive things that we associate with key people of influence, then, and, and the more it's about vitality than functionality, then you, the more you end up surfing the wave that's happening at the moment. So um, when you see someone who's really caught up in their functionality, their skill set, their, what they used to do, the, you know, the, the predictable set of steps that they used to go through in order to crank the handle, um, though, those people are having a harder time and the people that are embracing change and dynamism and, and focused on outcome versus process, uh, they're the ones having a great time. Right. And to, to sort of build on that point, 
you know, this is not a necessarily a generational thing. I imagine this is more of a mindset thing. Oh, completely. There are people who, you know, let's, you know, let's look at someone like George Clooney, for example, just popped into my mind. Um, you know, this is a guy who you know, decides to get behind a, a, a new startup and make 700 million uh, from, from growing and scaling and using his brand from this particular startup. And he's also engaged in human rights issues with his wife. And he's also engaged in trying to transform the environment. He's also doing movies and all that sort of stuff. Um, you know, so, uh, so it's not an age thing at all. It's really, it's about showing up in a powerful and vital way. Yeah. Okay. Well, I want to kind of ask a question around this in terms of, in terms of how you do show up in the identity piece, because the question I've got is how important is mindset in business? Uh, I think it's, I think it's a very important, but it's also very misunderstood. So if you actually look at the neurology of how the brain is built, there's a very old and outdated model called the three brain model. And even though it's outdated and we know more, we've got a much more nuanced version of the brain now, um, it's still actually quite a useful place to start. And essentially it says that the brain is made up of three dominant layers, which is the reptilian brain, the mammalian brain, and the neofrontal cortex or the human brain. Um, and we all come with all three parts pre-installed. All of that is already in your head um, and you can't escape this. So everyone's got what I call a reptile, a monkey and a empire builder in their head. Um, and what's funny about something like Tony Robbins, for example, is that I've had the experience of going to Tony Robbins and in that moment, in that environment, I get into the big picture, the, the inspired visionary stuff. And for the next few days, I'm just walking on cloud nine and I'm unstoppable and I'm thinking in terms of, you know, why don't I do this and raise money and there's no barriers and we could do this, and we could, you know, all of that sort of stuff. And then you can get into a different environment. Maybe you get around some of the wrong people or you get, caught up in the day-to-day -day of life and you get into your comfort zone again and all of that kind of thinking that you had suddenly dissipates and uh, and you get caught up in oh i've got to get the wet towels in the dryer and and all of this kind of stuff pick up the kids from school yeah i know i know that yeah know that so what's interesting and i'll actually give you a real example i worked with one of the top personal development speakers in the world uh 12 years ago and i won't say his name but um, this guy would get up on stage in front of a thousand people and talk about mindset and personal development, spirituality and all of these kind of big concepts. And I was with him one day when he checked into a hotel and they hadn't given him his platinum points that he, uh, that he should get as a regular frequent stayer. And, um, and they hadn't upgraded him, him to the room that he wanted. They hadn't acknowledged the preferences that were his standard preferences when he checked into a room. And he just absolutely lost his shit at the, at the person on the front desk. <laughs> and and it, was, uh, it was funny because I witnessed him have a proper reptile moment, um, feeling, you know, indignance and all this sort of stuff. And, and then the very next day, he's up in front of, you know, a thousand people talking about, you know, having a higher, you know, a big picture consciousness and not sweating the small stuff. And, um, and I find it funny because this is what, I, the, the reason I tell that story is that everything's pre-installed. So this mindset that you've got to develop, it's already there. It's actually, it's actually already, you already have, most people listening to this have already had an experience of what it's like to have a big purposeful moment, um, to be visionary, to feel uninhibited by challenges, um, to see the bigger picture and, and feel confident to go after something that's big. So we've all had those moments before. And the real question is not so much how do you cultivate that mindset because it's already there, the software's already installed. 
it's how do you kind of spend more time there and how do you stay there, um, which is which I find more is more the challenge for most people. Yeah, no, I had I had a, a guy called Gerald Rogers who's um, a pretty world renowned coach if you want to call that in the US, um, and he came on and he actually did a a bit of an intervention halfway through the episode, which was quite fun. Um, but, but he was he was talking about you know you can show up. It depends on what state you show up in. So there's a point where there is the state where you have you know, walked into a room, for example, and you've had to pitch something or win a piece of business, and you you have you have had so much certainty in that moment that the the version of you that showed up there, you can you can potentially turn that on at any point in time. But most people just don't know how to do that, and so you know, uh, I would agree. I would agree, and I'd also disagree a little bit. Um, and all I would say is that uh, humans are extremely responsive to environment, so. Um, yes, you can show up for short bursts as that really dynamic, powerful person. Um, and for short bursts, you can pull it off, but we, over, over time and distance over, you know, when you talk about years at a time, it's actually, we tend to sync up with our environment. So if I get into a party culture and a party scene, I suddenly feel that you know my my natural environment is going out late at night being in a party environment um hanging out at nightclubs and all of that sort of stuff i can actually sync up with that environment if i choose to and if i wanted to and if i got used to that environment um if i get into the corporate culture as you experienced you can sync up with the environment of starting at seven and finishing at seven and those are just the normal hours uh when you work in large you know certain large corporate environments um, you can sync up with environments that are more lifestyle orientated and balance orientated. Um, and also you normalize against your peer group. So if you've got a peer group that are you know, super excited about computer games and not very excited about changing the world, then yeah, okay, you can burst into the room and start talking about changing the world, but you'll get feedback from your environment very rapidly that they don't care, they're not interested, and you shouldn't care either. So you, you, it's very difficult to, over the time and distance and long term, actually show up powerfully in the wrong environment. Yeah, no, I get that. I mean, I talk a lot about changing environments. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, and that, that's actually, that's the key. When you, when you figure out that you want to show up powerfully in a particular way, you actually, in many cases, what works long term is using that short burst of energy to move environments and get around the right people who are also passionate about the same sort of stuff um and to, to make shifts in the environment because um ultimately it, it, i i think it's actually almost impossible uh, long term to uh to influence your environment the environment will influence you yeah no i agree with that fully i i i found that one of the big changes i personally made and i still do this every every quarter i go away somewhere um and i have an experience if you like with and usually it's around business. Usually it's about learning something new, putting myself in a room with people who are, you know, in some cases, um, perhaps more interesting than me. <laughs> well, so, certainly. It's good room to good room to be in, yeah. It's a great room to be in. But you know what? You come back, A, two things happen. You come back to your point before. You do come back quite inspired with a whole heap of new ideas. But um, you also, I think, you know, that just having that, even that short burst of exposure kind of gets you, gets you focused again. Um, as opposed to being sort of stuck in something which is which is happening every single day in day out, like as you said, you know, doing the washing. And what about you, Daniel? Do you do you have do you do something similar? Do you, do you kind of change your environment? Have you got a, a sort of routine around that or a habit around that? So I'm I'm particularly um, 
perceptive of five elements of the environment uh, around me. Uh, so the five elements that I'm looking for is what strategies and best practices am I being exposed to on a regular basis? So, for example, if you hang out with tech entrepreneurs, you hear about technologies a year before they hit the mainstream. And if you're not in those circles, you're just not hearing about those technologies. You're not hearing about those approaches. Um, so I want to be in an environment where I'm, where, you know, where I'm just naturally hearing about stuff that's kind of early stage um, uh, before it hits the mainstream. Um, the next thing is like, who's my peer group? Who's my mentors and my peer group around me? Um, I want to make sure that I'm not the most successful person in the room, that I'm, that I'm actually feeling quite intimidated or, or um, kind of lagging behind. Uh, recently, I've been hanging out a fair bit with a, with a particular guy who, um, he's my age, but he's got a $1.3 billion uh, net worth after five very successful startups in a row. And he's attracted a group of people around him who are, you know, sort of PhDs and, you know, in, in from Cambridge and, you know, just extraordinary people who are all in their thirties. And, um, and actually it's a wonderful environment to be at his dinner parties because, you know, you're just looking around the table and everyone's up to some really big stuff and it just automatically calls forth uh, a different mindset. Um, yeah. And then the, Brilliant. The, the other elements is accountability and consequences that essentially if I'm only accountable to myself, then I'm not really accountable to anyone. Um, and, um, uh, and then tools and resources. Am I able to access those tools and resources? And then the final one is like, what am I focused on? Like, what am I, what's the, what's the actual focus of the environment? So I kind of, in my journal, I grade those things and I sort of try and get a bit honest. It's like, am I showing up in a high performance environment, you know, that delivers the kind of things that I want from life or am I surrounding myself with people who make me feel comfortable? Yeah, I, I, I often say, you know, if you're the most interesting person in the room, you're in the wrong room. Yeah. <laughs> how did you how did you come about? I mean, that's that's you know, relatively it's obviously it's very well thought out and it's quite structured. How did you come up with those areas, those, those principles? Um, well, as as you mentioned, we put together accelerator programs and um, essentially the the question I was kind of asking myself again and again was how do we create an environment that predictably gets people to perform at their best? so that I don't have to have one-on-one -on -one interventions with people, but the environment does the work. Um, so I was really fascinated by things like uh, high-performance tennis clubs, uh, high-performance um, military environments, high-performance uh, companies, um, and what they kind of mean by culture in those high-performance companies. A lot of people think it means having office dogs and beanbags and ukulele lessons and all that sort of stuff. And yeah. And what, what they look, massages on Friday. And yeah, <laughs> you know, it's great. We've got, you know, we've got a, a salad bar and it's kind of like, okay, all of those things, you know, show up as symptoms of a high performance environment. But actually underneath that, I was really trying to understand how do you create an environment where people really perform based on just the expectation of the environment, you know, that you become googly. Just by, just by being in the Google environment, you can't help but think about a 10 million person you know uh, feature uh, that that sort of stuff uh, so it was okay. basically when I studied those environments that I found those five elements that just keep reoccurring yeah no they're I mean they were very well articulated and I, I think I <laughs> I um, perhaps not probably not as structured as the way you expressed it but each of those things have, have become critical to my my sort of growth and my development and certainly the business success that I've had as well 
because I, I'm quite intentional about this. So every year, um, I mean, I have a vision. I have a vision which goes out as far out as 20 years. Then I set goals and then I have a, sort of a quarterly cadence around how I achieve those. But I, I build a list of both personal and professional development every single year. And then I seek out environments and mentors who I want to be around, who I think are going to, to get, closer. get me closer and, and also teach me some skills that I want to or, or improve some skills so that I can get closer to those goals and that, that longer term vision. Yeah, brilliant. So let's get into, if we can, I think this is really, really interesting. Can we, let's get into scale up because I want to ask you a couple of kind of, it can sound quite simple questions, but I think it'd be really interesting your perspectives for this audience. So what do you think the difference or the transition between startup to scale up? So startup is, is very much about um, developing a proof of concept, uh, getting feedback from the marketplace that you've got something of value. Um, and you might only be able to deliver that to a small number of people. So, you know, you might say, okay, I've figured out how to create a watch that tells the time, but I can only make one or two of those per month. Um, scale up is about okay now we've figured out what value looks like how do we get that to more people how do we open up in different cities or go into different markets um, uh, you know how do we um, expand upon different product iterations that might um, add value to more different types of people so essentially you're you've, you've figured out value which of itself is a very difficult thing very very hard part of the journey I would say that getting to your first hundred thousand of revenue you're not halfway to 200,000, you're probably more like halfway to a million because uh, the figuring out that first, um, figuring out that first step, which is what does value look like in this space is an incredibly difficult step. And then changing gears and making the conscious shift to, okay, now, I've, now I understand value. Now let's have a look at how we reach more people and, and scale uh, is, is a different set of questions. What do you find with, okay, so someone who is going through that journey, say they're the founder, the leader of a business, what do you, what do you when they're going through that, I mean, I often see that um, there's, there's a big shift in terms of how they need to be. And a lot of them struggle. A lot of businesses go backwards at this point in time. What are, what are the key components of that transition, do you think, that a leader needs to understand to be successful? Yeah, well, there's, there's some really big shifts um, that have to happen. So in the first in the first uh, instance of starting a business, you kind of have to be Bear grills, And you think about Bear, Bear grills roaming around in the forest trying to survive, trying to figure out how do I get through the next week um, and how do I bolt together these two trees so that I can have a little shelter and, and kind of all of that. And it's kind of like being nimble, being light, being all on your own um, and being like hands-on with everything and, and being tough and gritting it out. Um, so that's, that's kind of like persona number one for, for getting through the very first phase of, of business. Um, the next phase of business, you kind of have to be like a micro celebrity within a mini niche where you've got a small team of people who are your entourage. Uh, and, um, you know, you've got three to 12 people. If you've ever seen the show entourage where he's got his three to 12 close friends and associates and he literally ropes. I love, I love that show. Yeah. And, and he wrote, <laughs> I I've been to that on. Netflix. It's a great show and, and he ropes in his high school friends and, and all of that sort of stuff to be his close confidence and they just kind of solve problems together and they roam around solving problems. But the main entrepreneur is the um, kind of has to play the role of the celebrity getting out there and winning the business and speaking and, fight, you know, basically showing up powerfully in that micro niche uh, and attracting business and attracting people and all of that sort of stuff. So that's 
that's that next phase of business essentially being a key person of influence with a um, entourage around you um, and uh, and then there's this huge shift that we call the desert which is you're too big to be small too small to be big and in many ways you piss off your entourage because you start hiring highly skilled highly talented people with a background and experience and they kind of clash with your entourage who are there because they can breathe and they've got time available and um, uh, you know they're not necessarily your entourage aren't really skilled they're just trusted and um and then you start hiring skilled and talented people so you have to kind of be a bit of a diplomat and um and you have to be able to step back and let people make their own mistakes and, and become more of a coach a mentor a guide um as and you, you have to be really resilient as your business goes through this big phase of um uh, of, of of transformation uh, which is the hardest part around 15 to 25 people is about the hardest part uh, where everything's kind of clashing um, you're cleaning out some of the original crew you're getting in some new people who are expensive and you can't afford them they're better and more paid than you are um, you know you're doing you've got people having romantic affairs within your organization at about 20 people you've got people hooking up um, and then they break up and that causes ripples through the whole company <laughs> So all of this stuff goes on at around 20 people um, and you've got to be part diplomat, part coach, uh, part, you know, fire officer putting out fires, um, part mini celebrity trying to win business. But you don't have the, at, at that point, you don't have enough attraction to be able to keep an organization of 30 people afloat. Um, so you have to go from a P&L mindset of winning business to a balance sheet mindset of developing assets that can win business. So you, it's a really, really tough phase. And the scale-up phase of going from that 3 to 12-person entourage to that 40 to 70-person company, that, that business, um, is, is essentially one of the hardest parts of business that you'll ever go through, which is why you get so well rewarded if you get to the other side. You know, on the other side, you make more than a million a year in profit. Um, you've got a scalable organisation. You've got people offering to buy the business. Uh, you know, you, you get the rewards and the payoffs are big because so few people can do it. I mean, you've, you've worked successfully with, I'd say, thousands of companies now and therefore thousands of entrepreneurs in this going through this dilemma or this challenge. Yeah. Um, how do you help them? How do you help? I mean, there must be some people who look at this and go, wow, that is just so all consuming from, you know, I was the guy in a shed who just made this thing that solved a problem. Well, for starters... The number one way I help a lot of people is tell them not to do it. So um, there's a lot of people where I say, just because you like tennis doesn't mean you'd like being a professional tennis player. Um, so just because you are doing well with three to 12 people doesn't mean that you're well suited to be a 50 to 150 person business with managing investors and stakeholders and partners and corporate and all of that kind of stuff. You might not like that. So a lot of people have to come to terms with the fact that the lifestyle business that they really enjoy kind of taps out at about 12 people. Um, you know, it, it is the entourage model. And, um, and essentially, you know, when you get to about 12 people and perhaps two to three million in revenue, you start to kind of max out that gear. Um, and, um, and that's cool. That's fine. And actually, for the vast majority of people, I'd say something like 90% of people, that's actually heaven. You, you've got fun, freedom, flexibility. You're a micro celebrity within a tiny little niche. So you're a big fish in a little pond. Um, you get invited to go to niche conferences and speak. 
you get people who want to pay you great money to, to consult with them. You come up with little product innovations and ideas and people buy them and can sell enough of them to make great money. You can switch across to recurring revenue contracts and then, you know, every year you start, start the year knowing 80% of how much you're going to make. So there's all these fun things you can do with less than 12 people because you've got low overheads. You probably don't need a big office. You don't need, you know, you can use, you can leverage off the shelf technology and software. So, um, you know, the, the, these are, these are great things. So the number one thing I would do to help most people is say, just don't bother. Just keep it under 12, get rid of the poor performance. See if you can up the, up the stakes, improve the product, um, get better at the marketing, but just, you know, just get a very high revenue per person, very high profitable, small business lifestyle business and enjoy it and become global and, and enjoy that phase of business and then have a portfolio of interests uh, outside of business as well so that's um that's my advice for the majority mm -hmm. of people there are some people weirdos freaks <laughs> uh gluttons for, gluttons for punishment who who say to me look i hear what you're saying that i shouldn't do it but i'm, I'm gonna do it anyway and actually that's what i'm looking for when I hear when I when I slap someone down and say this is not a good path to go through, this is going to be a lot of pain from ten to forty people. You're going to hate the business. You're going to you're going to fantasize every single day about selling this business. You you're going to be literally doing this for the exit. Um, you're going to be turning up every day with a vision of getting rid of this thing that you spend your time doing. Um, you know it'll change, and on the other side of the desert, you'll actually not want to sell the business, which is the turning point. But for two years, you're going to hate the damn thing. Um, and when I tell people that, and then they say, yeah, that's cool, I'm up for it. I go, okay, maybe you are cut up. Maybe you are cut out for this. Um, so, so then there's a process of, of, of dealing with complexity. So business essentially, it's a wall of complexity. And um, we've got to put a lot of systems, processes, and assets into place to deal with that complexity. Um, and you've got to have a, a role in the business that is you know, stepping back, letting bad things happen, um, being a coach, a mentor, a, a firefighter at times, um, an ambassador or an evangelist, an asset creator. Um, so you're going to have to kind of juggle these multiple roles uh, as we move from a P&L driven business to a balance sheet driven business. Yeah, no, I can see that. I can see that totally. And it must be, it must be interesting when you meet these individuals who have huge aspirations. Um, and then you and you sort of hit them like with a piece with a, with a cold fish. <laughs> sort of, but I, but I, you've got to be honest, right? You've got to you've got to you've got to because I agree with you 100%. I've, I've got a couple of people I'm working with now as you were telling that story, and I'm thinking they are exactly in the desert in the struggle, and and all they want to do is get rid of the business. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's what's hilarious is that you know you've hit the other side of the desert when. You, like all through the desert, you wake up every day thinking, God, I just, if someone offered me any amount of money, like if someone, if someone offered me 600,000 pounds, I'd sell this business. Secretly, you think I would sell for pretty cheap. Um, and you kind of like, oh, I would just give anything. And you can't keep fantasizing about a white knight who's going to ride on in and, and take <laughs> you to the next level. Um, is that and, you, Daniel? Is that, that. is that is that kind of? I'm, I'm <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm everyone else's white knight. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I'm I'm not I'm not the white knight. I'm the I'm the evil wizard who yeah. who says it's not gonna who says it's all. I'm Yoda who says <laughs> you're gonna have to find the force. Um, so 
all through the desert, you keep fantasizing about white knights and passive income and diversification and multiple streams of income. And what if, what if someone bought the business? What would I do with it? And you keep thinking about, oh, wouldn't it be great if someone just bought the business for this and then I go off and buy two houses and, you know, and I could get rent and, you know, I could sleep in and all those kind of things. And, uh, and then the, the turning point, there's a magical turning point where suddenly you think to yourself, actually, I wouldn't sell this business. This is a cracking business. And you think to yourself, even if someone paid me five million, what would I do? Like five million, you know, the business is now working. If someone gave me five million pounds and the business is now making a million a year in profit, what would I do that would even get close to having as much fun, being perfectly suited to, to my needs? Um, you know, so suddenly that it, it turns and you go, oh, I must be across the desert because I'm not fantasizing about selling the thing anymore. Wow. Yeah, no, I can, I can, I'm just thinking back through some of my experiences in the private equity world <laughs> where I've sort of been in businesses and been in that same, I can see it. I can see it. Oh, they brought you in to cross the desert. No wonder you got tired of it. Oh, you my were the, God, mate. You were the, you were the desert, the, the desert, uh... the desert wanderer. I don't know. What, what, I'm trying to think of a Star Wars analogy because you've introduced that now. Um... <laughs> <laughs> oh, it must it must be those? It must be in number two where they're in the ice and they've got to try and get through the ice caves and all oh, that sort of yeah. stuff. There, there's something. You're, you're you know what? There's something about the resilience of going. It's a bit like probably the same as you know when you go into into startup. It can be it can be a lot of fun, but it can also be challenging. I think when you're going through that that desert scale up piece, you you build a certain amount of resilience. And you do you do build a lot of resilience, and I I can imagine if you're part of a private equity firm, I guess to an extent your base salary is protected. Yeah, you've got that, but you go in it for the for the for the exit. I mean, it's it's a different type of thing. You've got you've got a certain amount of certainty on salary, but you are incentivized to get a seven figure or more exit. But yeah, so all your all your upsides on the on the exit. So I think the probably the reason most people can't hack it as purely as the entrepreneur. Is because you you actually t take a quite a significant dip in income typically. So as the lifestyle business of ten, you know, you might have had a business that had ten people doing one point two million, and you're taking home two hundred grand. And then by the time you've got sixteen or seventeen people, you're losing money, and you're going, "What the hell? Why? You know, I had a better life when we were a smaller business." And you keep fantasizing. You fantasize up and down. So you fantasize up as in, "Wouldn't it be great to get a big exit?" And you fantasize down as in, "Wouldn't it be great to go back to eight? Uh, I, yeah, so you are really, as I like the way you call it the desert or no man's land. You are kind of stuck in this piece where, you know, when you're right in the middle of it, going back is difficult and moving forward is difficult, but you've got to make a choice. Yeah. <laughs> you, can't, yeah. you can't stay, can't stay there. there. Um, so I'm, I'm conscious you'll be very generous with your time. I'm going to, I just got a couple more questions for you, if that's all right. So the first, first thing is if someone is in the desert, so they haven't met you as the evil Yoda or whatever it is, and, and they've kind of got themselves in this position. Um, what what's some advice you would give them? Obviously, one of the do you ever advise them to sort of move back into? Oh, hundred, yeah, hundred percent. It's it's a perfectly valid move to say, you know what, what I really want, ego aside, right? Which is an ego. Mm -hmm. You've got to make an egoless decision. You've got to say, ego aside, I am not actually all that keen or cut out for uh, getting the business up to a business where I'm managing uh, debt stakeholders large relationships, 40 employees plus. I'm really not excited by that. Um, you know, I don't want the overheads. I don't want to have to do the full transformation constantly uh, for the next two years, in which case it's a totally valid move to just go back to eight people, a core team of eight focused on a, on a very valuable niche. Um, most businesses 
that run into trouble at about 15 to 20 people, if you take them back to eight people and focus on one segment, they do extremely well really fast. They go from loss making to profit real fast. Mm. Um, and they go from losing 200 grand to making two, 300 grand a year um, after everyone's paid, you know, so, uh, you know, so one of the, one of the turnaround strategies is to turn around. <laughs> turn, turn back yeah, I like and, it. And, nice way of putting it. And, and, yeah, because I, I, I get exposed to, I mean, I was doing a lot of stuff. I do, I do a lot of work in the US and I get exposed to all sorts of different things. I get pitched almost, if not daily, certainly every few days on, on tech businesses that uh, have got, you know, one to two million dollars worth of revenue and they're going to sell at a revenue multiple of 20, um, but they're not profitable. And one of the first things I always ask them is, when are you going to be profitable? Mm. When is that going to happen? And sometimes people are pretty good. Some of the people know broadly what the... Um, drivers are of that question. Yep. But quite a lot don't know. So what's when you when you when you're looking at businesses, I just curious of your perspective. Yep. And you are you are you focused on the value and the profit or do you do you kind of understand the balance of this we're chasing we're chasing revenue, we're chasing a bigger thing. What's your perspectives on that? Well the way I think about it is um for for a bigger business, let's say we choose not to turn around and go small, we go big. Then what I'm looking for is a desired end state asset. Um, so for example, everyone's obsessed with profit and sometimes it's relevant. Sometimes it's not relevant, um, in, in the short term and think about it like this. If you owned this beautiful piece of land on the beachfront and you've got a hotel development site and you could put up a hundred room hotel. Um, and really if you work with a construction company an award-winning architect, an environmental specialist, you could do something really special, a destination hotel something that you know is great for the community great for the environment and it's going to be a hundred rooms and it's going to be beautiful well in the short term profit really doesn't matter because you know what you're shooting for now imagine you get halfway through building that hotel and and the manager starts freaking out and saying oh we're not renting enough rooms and there's not enough profit coming out of this and you say well yeah well we're still in construction like don't be an idiot we're still building the damn thing um so provided i know what the end state asset looks like that this is going to be a hundred room hotel. Let's build the hotel as fast as possible. And then we'll worry about how profitable it is. Uh, and we've, you know, you know, uh, inbuilt in that assumption is that we've proven that the market wants it and that the, you know, that it can be rented out profitably when we get there and all of that sort of stuff. And I'm, I'm more interested in the underlying asset that we're building as opposed to the profit that we're making today. Got it. Got it. But, but the key, the key thing you said there is there is a pathway to that. There's a clear pathway that, can see whatever however that's been validated as opposed to someone thinking that you know if i build it they will come yeah bigger bigger is better is rarely true um and you know you know it's funny there are certain sizes that work and then don't work so for example uh, airbnb was making i think it was making 90 million profit per year and then they said oh we've got to get bigger and um and now they're you know they're they're you know they were a multi-billion dollar company now they're losing 290 million a year and, um, you know, by trying to be as big as Facebook. And maybe there's a natural size where Airbnb naturally is that size and it should be profitable and the fundamentals are strong and there's a good um, imbalance between demand and supply. And all of those things that, you know, work at that particular size, you know, the, the goal for me is not necessarily um, bigger is better. It's elegant design. I want to see something that is beautifully designed to fit within its marketplace. and if we can figure out what the elegant design looks like, then we're not necessarily worried about bigger is better. We're worried about getting as close to that design as we possibly can. 
Yeah, I like that. I like that terminology as well. And I think that's for any of those, uh, the tech people listening, my San Francisco friends in Bay Area, uh, I think that's very, very good advice. All right, a couple of quick fire questions to finish with, um, Daniel, if that's okay, because I said you've been very good. Love, love it. Okay, you're ready. We, we can keep talking and we will keep talking because we're going to be doing some stuff later on together this year, which is great. All right, so best piece of business advice you've ever been given? Uh, I've, right up there would be income follows assets. Um, first develop the assets mm -hmm. and then you'll get the income. If you want more income, you need more, you need better assets. Okay, fine. And and. And how do you build assets then? Is that so? It's a dark art at the moment because at the moment the assets that are the most productive assets are intangible assets and very um, esoteric assets. So things like data is probably one of the most valuable assets on the world in the world, but very few people understand it and don't know how to create a data asset or how to leverage a data asset. Um, things like brand and positioning is a very valuable asset, but very people under very very few people understand how to leverage that asset. Um, or to create it. Culture is a great asset, um, but it's very difficult for most people to understand how to create it or leverage it. So the difficult thing on the, uh, at the, in the world of wealth creation at the moment is that income follows assets, but the assets that are most productive are not property and land, labor, capital, factories, um, machinery, and all that sort of stuff. Uh, it's not traditional balance sheet assets. It's, it's, um, new, economy it's new economy assets. Yeah, and no, I get that. I mean, I, I look at it from um, the content that I produce through this podcast, for example. Content asset. Yeah, it's content asset. But in terms of what it's done in terms of the businesses that I've acquired and, and the other businesses that I've actually started off the back of doing this. Yeah. Um, and, has been huge. And that's a, that is a legitimate intellectual property asset called content. And the more you have strong content assets, the more you'll attract a ton of opportunity and you'll make a bunch of money income the, the fundamental principle the first principle of income follows assets is still true but you're leveraging a very esoteric asset that very few people understand which is content got it okay okay and the worst piece of business advice you've ever been given uh, hustle <laughs> <laughs> ah, okay so you're not you're that's not a grant cardone 10x guy no no exactly um <laughs> like like hustle obviously is good for the first hundred grand um hustling into existence doing some hard work going on a sprint you know, definitely going on a sprint, but you have to understand that you're going on an asset sprint, not a hustle sprint. So if I hustle to wash cars, at the end of 90 days, I'm going to have washed a lot of cars, made 10 pounds an hour, and, um, and I will be no closer to being wealthy at all, even though I've worked from morning till night. So there's absolutely no point on going on that sprint. Um, if I go on an asset sprint to code uh, a product, an MVP, and to get it validated in the marketplace and to go on a sprint to raise some money to, to do it, okay, that, that's the kind of hustle that might pay off. Um, but purely and simply, there's so many people out there just saying, go hustle, go work harder, do longer hours. Um, you know, I'm not naming names, Gary Vaynerchuk, but, uh, but we, need, <laughs> we need to point that in a direction somewhere. Um, yeah, no, I, I totally get. I mean, I, I, I did a podcast episode recently, which was called "Slowing Down to Speed Up," and it was inspired by a quote by the Navy SEALs, which is something like, "Fast is smooth, um, and smooth is deadly," or something like that. But it was, it's the idea that sometimes you, you are when you're more focused and more intentional, as opposed to just being chaotic, mm. um, you get greater success. I noticed this when I had kids um, that. Uh, having three kids under five massively reduced my ability to hustle um, and yet my income went through the roof 
And it was basically down to making better choices as to how I'd spend my time. Yeah. No, being intentional with your time is, I think, a superpower. All right, last question for today, um, as I said. So, and if you could change one thing in the world today, because I know that you're very mission-led in terms of what you do with Dent Global, what would that one thing be? Uh, I would get every single business on the planet to adopt a United Nations global goal. There are 17 global goals um, that are set out, and regardless of what you think of United Nations or any of that sort of stuff, they're good goals, and they're good goals for the planet. Um, and I would get every single business on the planet to find out which United Nations global goal uh, it was aligned to, to make a conscious choice about that, and then to adopt a way of doing business, um, a way of giving some money, uh, and a way of doing some pro bono work that would in some way improve that goal or, or move towards that goal. Um, and my belief is that entrepreneurial minds focused on meaningful problems is actually uh, what's, what's best for the planet. Um, it frustrates me to no end seeing more and more people making money out of nonsense. Um, you know, not mentioning names, Candy Crush, but um, <laughs> uh, uh, you know. But but what I want to see, I want to see the world's most entrepreneurial people focused on the world's biggest problems. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I, I have a very similar um, piece that I talk about, which is providing the skill set and potentially the mindset of entrepreneurship to people who don't naturally have access to that. And that was actually spawned by, someone said to me once, I forget who, who actually said this, but you know, the cure for cancer might be in some, some person's head in the middle of Africa, you know, where yeah. education and poverty and all those sort of things are high. And, and that idea has no vehicle to come out. Yeah, or uh, yeah, and the cure for cancer could also be in an engineer who's just not great at pitching. And he keeps showing up as a nutcase. And, you know, he's, he's like, guys, I've, fa I've figured it out. I've got it. And everyone's like, yeah, yeah, okay, whatever. Um, and we need a little bit of like pitch. Actually, one of the things that would be change the world is teaching people how to pitch at school so that if they do have a good idea, they know how to communicate it to others. Yeah, well, I, I, yeah, absolutely. I had uh, Oren Clapp on recently, if, you, if you've ever heard of Oren. Yeah, um, Yeah, he was, it was an interesting interview, very challenging interview because he tried to do some of his particular techniques on me. But I, I fully believe on that. The whole, the whole idea of influencing, getting your ideas shared, um, that's a massive skill. But well, listen, Daniel, mate, honestly, I don't think we ranted too much as crazy Australians. We did talk about Star Wars for a bit. That was cool. <laughs> we did. <laughs> force was strong. Yeah, the force is strong. Thank you very much for your time. There's so much stuff in this. This is going to be a very popular episode, I can tell, because a lot of the stuff we covered today are questions that I get every single week. And, and I know there's a lot of structure and good thinking, good experience that you've had helping many people go from startup to scale up and beyond. So I thank you very much for coming on the show today. Brilliant. Thanks so much for having me.